Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insight segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping medical treatments today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varelli, and I'm joined here by my co-host. Hi, I'm Jenna Glasser. Our guest today is Dr. Greg Verdine. Greg is an eminent serial entrepreneur and investor in the life sciences industry. He's founded a number of companies and currently serves as the president and CEO of both Fog Pharma and LifeMind Therapeutics. Greg has also worked in the venture capital industry as a venture partner with Apple Tree Partners, Third Rock Ventures, and Wuxi Healthcare Ventures. Prior to his career in the biotech industry, Greg had an extensive academic career that spanned three decades, and he was named the Irving Professor of Chemistry at Harvard University. He has made significant contributions to the study of epigenetics and DNA damage repair, and has more recently pioneered a new therapeutic modality termed stapled peptides that are poised to expand the space of druggable targets. He received his PhD in chemistry from Columbia University. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Joe and Jenna. That's Thank you for that kind introduction. It's a real privilege to be here. My, my daughter uh, is a Blue Jay, my eldest daughter. Uh, is a Blue Jay. So uh, whatever Hopkins asks, I'm willing to give. Oh, we love to hear that. And (laughs) one of the founding principles of the Hopkins Biotech Podcast was to help academic trainees really explore the idea of careers beyond academia. And in those terms, given your extensive career in academia before shifting to industry, I think you have one of the most interesting stories that we've highlighted to date. So I'm hoping that you could start by telling us how a named professor so ingrained in the academic ecosystem ends up founding and running multiple biotech companies. Well, we, we will have to go back a little bit, um, Joe. So when I, so as uh, you know, I began in the chemistry department at Harvard. That's where I, my initial appointment was in. And uh, then only later did I transition to stem cell and regenerative biology at Harvard and Harvard Medical School. It's the first university-wide department at Harvard. But I started out in chemistry and it was it was really common for people in chemistry to do, do consulting. And so early on in my career at Harvard, I consulted for Merck, and for uh, for Hoffman LaRoche, and just and I spent you know more than ten years just doing that, and it was an incredible education. Um, it was in a way it was an, an education in what pharmaceutical companies can't do more uh, than what they can do, and so when I was doing that, I I learned from it was right when the pharmaceutical companies first started doing ultra high throughput screening of compound libraries. So Hoffman LaRoche got a, um, they developed all this sophisticated automation technology to uh, bank over a million compounds from their corporate compound library and to screen that for the very first time against 35 targets. And I, they had no, they had no idea what to expect, right? Like, how, what fraction of targets are going to give a positive hit with a million-member library? No one had ever done this before. But I was a fly on the wall as a consultant, seeing the outcome of this experiment, and the the, the outcome was really shocking. The the number of targets out of thirty-five 
that scored positive where there was any kind of hit at all was zero. Zero. A complete whiff. And I think they were pretty shocked too. And that was when people in Roche and then other companies were starting to do very similar things, started using this term undruggable. They said, these targets, they're 35, they're undruggable. Why? Because we hadn't learned how to, how to, how to drug them. And I just found that to be really um, shameful because, you know, with those targets, they're representing important diseases and behind every disease is an important patient. And the idea that we're just going to say to these patients, I'm sorry, because we don't, because we suffer from a lack of imagination or compounds or whatever that, whatever it is that we're just, there's nothing we can do for you. You you know, your, your target's undruggable. And so I, I, because I was in academics, I could say, all right, you know, everybody else is just figuring that's the way it is. I could say, all right, I'm not going to accept that. That's not okay. And let, let's unpack this whole thing. Let's figure out why they're undruggable and, and try to f- invent our way to a solution. So it was really that kind of frustration um, over the state of affairs in small molecule drug discovery. You know, if it's an extracellular target, you have antibodies. And so most extracellular targets are druggable, but that's only 10% of human proteins. 90% of of them are inside of the cell and 90% of those are still undruggable even now, right? So like, I think a lot of companies get started because people are, are frustrated by something. Um, and I just felt that this was an area where academics were just going to have to step in and break the mold uh, because the mold was so well established in companies like Roche. And I'm not impugning them. They gave me a great training, but they weren't going to go out and say, I'll tell you what, let's do something crazy. Let's go out and discover how to turn peptides into drugs or or, 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 you know, even therapeutic viruses at that time, or CAR-T, any of the things, even oligonucleotide therapeutics were like so exotic at that time. Uh, so I was really driven by frustration and by a sense of shame over my field, the field of chemistry, that we would be so inadequate um, and that there would be such big consequences for patients. So that's what le- that's what got me into this was really frustration. So you mentioned that most of these undruggable targets are mostly intracellular. What are some other characteristics that would make something undruggable? Yeah, that's a great question, Jenna. So, you know, most of the things that are that are druggable and are or, you know, easily recognized as such are things that already bind a small molecule. What would those be? Protein uh, enzymes, right? Enzymes that are working on peptides, stretches of, uh, of 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 other proteins, and so on. And it's really especially the things like transcription factors and uh, you know regulatory proteins and. things that work just by protein-protein interactions that don't have a hydrophobic pocket in them. Most of the things that are druggable have a definable hydrophobic pocket. And, you know, there's no magic to that. If you just think about it, small molecules are small, so they don't have a lot of contact surface area. And because they don't have a lot of contact surface area, they don't have a lot of adhesive force. 
And so all that that hydrophobic pocket does is it surrounds the molecule from all sides and it maximizes contact surface area. Now, if you're in anybody, you've got 1,500 square angstroms of contact surface area. You have lots of real estate, so you can recognize anything. But if you're a small molecule, you may only have 400 square angstroms or 500 square angstroms of contact surface area. And that's really where it comes from. The thing is, it's just rooted in physics, right? And, 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 and it, the molecule needs to be nonpolar enough to get into a cell. So the things that are druggable tend to be proteins with uh, hydrophobic pockets that can engage small molecules. So how do you then go about creating that hydrophobic space on something that is undruggable? I know there are yeah, a yeah. bunch of so, strategies, but I'm curious to hear how you, know, you and your lab did it too. Well, you guys, I think we're both going in the same direction. So one way of doing this is to say, okay, you know, okay, so let's step back. I was saying that you you kind of deconstruct the problem. You say, okay, we know antibodies have large contact surface areas, right? And they can recognize anything, but small molecules have small contact surface areas. So the molecules are going to have to get bigger. <laughs> and that's pretty, that doesn't take a lot of deep thinking. And then you could just ask, okay, what are, what, are, what is, is there a class of molecules sort of writ large that, kind of combine the best of antibodies and small molecules. And in some way that leads you to peptides. And, and, and if you look at, at historically, so this is a statistical or historical argument, but if you look at the, at the, over the last 10 years, the drugs that have been approved by the FDA that are over molecular weight 1,000, 75% of them are some form of a polypeptide. Okay, so that means, okay, simple thing, it's gonna to have to be a peptide of some kind, just because there, you know, there's reason to believe that it might actually work. In the small molecule world, we have something called the Lipinski rules that, you know, that the, the, the say there's a real penalty once you get above molecular weight 500. And the major reason for that penalty is actually um, P450 metabolism. So the more atoms you add on to a hydrocarbon, the more metabolic inactivation happens to it, right? So it's so, but you can avoid P450 metabolism by going to peptides. So that so that that all makes sense, right? If it's gonna, you're gonna need something big, so it's gonna have to be kind of the convergence of a small molecule and a protein that leads you to peptides. Good good news is there's lots of experience of peptides being over molecular weight 500. That's good. Now now you ask the question. All right, if it's going to be a peptide, is there a privileged structure? in peptide space. And one way of answering that, so you're gonna see how easy this logic is. It's, it's not like Harvard professor logic. This is like your kindergarten logic for someone who just learned chemistry. But anyway, then now you ask the question, all right, is there a privileged fold for a peptide? And all that you care about is that it, it goes across a membrane, right? It's gotta go across. So, so now, now we're gonna ask evolution. We're gonna ask a question from evolution to say, is there a privileged fold of a polypeptide that is compatible with the interior of a membrane? So for those of your listeners who are physics oriented or maybe physical chemistry oriented, you know, the dielectric constant of a membrane is about four, right? That's close to a vacuum 
right? It is really hydrophobic. And the aqueous phase is about 80. So any molecule that's going to go inside of the cell goes through this, con this uh, kind of electrostatic constriction where it has to go from being solvated, you know, on, in, in the bloodstream from dielectric of 80 to dielectric of four and then dielectric of 80 again and become re desolvated, resolvated. So if you look at human mem membranes, just say, okay, let's take all transmembrane proteins. Do they have a preferred fold? And you guys know the answer to this. Everybody knows the answer to that. It's the alpha helix. There's only one polypeptide fold. So if you ask evolution, if you look at proteins that are in the bloodstream, they have every fold, alpha, beta, turns, blah, 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 all possible protein folds, right? You guys have seen that, you know, the deep mind, you know, folding predictions and x-ray structures. Then if you look on the, on the inside of the cell, there's every fold, right? So evolution has had many, many solutions. If you look in the membrane, there's only one fold. All single spanning transmembrane proteins are alpha helical, all ion channels, all transporters, all everything. So, so evolution has had a chance to sample everything, but in the membrane, there's only one thing and it's an alpha helix. So if it's gotta be, if it's gotta get big, it's gotta be a peptide. If it's gotta be a peptide, it's gotta be an alpha helix. And that's what led us to the, uh, you know, to, to the entire um, focus around the stabilization and enforcement of alpha helices and turning them into drugs. I just unpacked the entire logic of what got us there. And that you know, is the basis of Fog Pharma and is also the basis of Aileron Therapeutics, the first gen um, company that did this. So I just taught everybody how to start a company. I like that you said it wasn't Harvard professor level yet. It it was very much coming from a Harvard I just took professor. Through the whole logic, and you could have done that yourself without without working very hard. Honestly, I mean, once but, you get to the end, it 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 is common sense. Yeah. Um, so now you have these stabilized peptides in an alpha helical uh, uh, form. So so, how do you get to a stable peptide, and, and what is the actual mechanism? Uh, of, of attaching a, a drug that has some sort of therapeutic effect? Well, so the first thing is, you know, if you leave a peptide to its own devices and you just make like a 14 or 15 amino acid peptide, it doesn't adopt an alpha helical structure. It only does that in the context of folding or the membrane or whatever. So you have to help it along. And the way you do that or the way, the way we've done that is to incorporate a brace, which is called a staple, that just prevents the thing from unfolding. That's all it says, look, you can't be a beta sheet, you can't be beta strand, you can't be a loop, you can't be anything, you can only be a helix. And so it's like a straight jacket. So that's the main chain. That only manages the main chain of the peptide. But you guys know that every single amino acid in that peptide has a side chain on it, right? So there are 20 naturally occurring side chains. If you look out in synthetic space, there are several hundred, at least 200 different side chains once you go into synthetic space. So the next step in all of this is to use side chain diversification to build in selectivity for a particular target, 
also to optimize for pharmacokinetics and tissue penetration and cell penetration and all of that. So the way that's done right now in, in Fog Pharma is to go use phage. So we begin with directed evolution on phage and screening libraries of about 100 million stabilized alpha helical peptides on phage. And we've screened almost 100 targets to date. So this, you can just take any target and screen it and you can discover, is there a molecular uh, solution to binding that target in an alpha helical scaffold space? And the answer to that for most, for, for almost hundred targets that we've screened so far, that includes transcription factors, E3 ligases, cyclins, not a lot of membrane proteins, some of those difficult, you know, things that are accessible biochemically, 75% of those will bind a helical peptide. So that's the first step. Find a binder and let's call that a hit. Okay. Now the next stage. So, so that only involves the naturally occurring amino acids. Now, in order to optimize that thing as a drug, you have to go into synthetic space where you're managing the hydrophobicity, hydrophilicity, the you know, tissue penetration, PK, all those kinds of things. And that's really done, at least in FOG, by uh, multiplexed uh, screening. So in, in, the, you know, in the old days, people would say, well, peptides are a problem because they're food, they get degraded, they, they're presented by MHCs and they don't penetrate cells and so on and so on. But if you just make them alpha helical, they become stable. If you just make them alpha helical, they can be orally bioavailable. If you just make them alpha helical, it tremendously helps them penetrate cells. If you just make it alpha helical, it can't bind a major histocompatibility antigen. So they have no immunogenicity, completely gone. If you just make it alpha helical, they're not cleared by the kidneys anymore. So just making it alpha helical like solves a lot of these things. And, 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 and so then after that, you know, as a class, peptides have a huge upside because they're self-encoding by mass spectrometry. You can make, you know, hundreds, thousands of these things, put them into a screen like for cytoplasmic exposure and just sequence them by peptidomic mass spectrometry. So you democratize, the synthesis is hugely democratized and the screening is hugely democratized. So that's what FOG does. It has the ability to uh, screen for multi multiple parameters, affinity, solubility, cell penetration, oral bioavailability, thousands of peptides within the space of a few months. Uh, and, and then what you can do is, you can train machine learning on that series of compounds because you have so many compounds, three to 5,000, some of which work, some of which don't. So in most of the small molecule space, there aren't enough training examples to actually train machine learning or deep learning algorithms on a particular series. But in this area, synthesis and screening are so democratized that it democratizes machine learning on it. And so that's how FOG discovered, discovers drugs. And FOG is now at the stage, it's like just a month or two, maybe three months away from selecting its first clinical candidate. This clinical candidate targets 
the monstrous oncogene beta-catenin, which is, you know, probably a barren in something like, you know, somewhere between a quarter and a third of all cancers. So it's just a monster, monster protein, really. And, and we're going to drug it. And it's, it's already that first one is headed to the clinic. So Joe, probably that's all my answers are long-winded, but that's just, you know, kind of giving you what, what, you know, and could we have done that in academics? Yeah, I don't think so. You know, we could have gotten the first, the idea, the thought stream that I took you through earlier, but, you know, developing all of that mass spectrometry, all the screening, all the synthesis, all of the, you know, you know, that really requires that you do that using a team of trained professionals. Yeah. And the, the answers are really rooted in academic science, but it seems like you've just built sort of the infrastructure and the standard operating procedure to do this at scale. And I You're think right. that is probably something that gives Fog that advantage almost as a platform company. Yeah, for respect. sure. It's a platform company because, you know, with a platform company, like I don't really believe in like some people call companies like Agios a platform company that or or companies that are working on like liver disease. To me, that's not a platform company. So, you know, I'm betraying my chemistry snobbery, but, uh, you know, a platform company is a company where discovering drug one makes the discovery of drug two faster and drug three faster than that, drug four faster than that, right? So if you look at CAR-T, that's a platform. CAR-T companies like Kite and Juno, those are platform companies. Moderna, Moderna is a platform company. Uh, you know, Wave Life Science is a platform company. Fog is a platform company. LifeMind is a platform company. So there should be some economy of scale. And, and you're right, you, you're creating something more like an, a standard operating procedure, but you're also scaling it, making it efficient. But the, the germ, the kernel of an idea often came from an academic kind of thought stream. And then also the pilot experiment, that critical pilot experiment was usually done in academics. Now that's true with fog, right? Because my lab piloted the discovery of, of, of hyperstabilized alpha helical peptides. However, we did not enable phage display of helices at Harvard. That was enabled actually in Fog Pharma, but it was enabled by John McGee, my former graduate student, who uh, is a scientific co-founder of Fog Pharma. So, you know, I, I told John, come join, join us in Fog Pharma and we'll figure out how to enable phage display. So we're like five years into this and he's he is now a director in the company that's really fast from directly from more, more or less a graduate student to a director in the company as, and as a group of, I think nine people, something like that now. So, you know, they've built this entire hit discovery platform and now they're building the second platform which is multiplexed hit to lead discovery. So there's one platform hands off to another platform. But if you, and now we're building the pharmacology platform, how do you learn how to make hyperstabilized alpha helices into powerful drugs? 
So that first drug, beta-catenin, is now headed to the clinic. There's another one that's about a year behind that that will target TAD, the major driver of the HIPPO pathway. There's another one not far behind that, which will target Sybil B, a central regulator of T cell proliferation. So this drug will uh, will actually activate Sybil B to uh, to um, prevent T cell hyperstimulation. Right behind that is ERG, which is a, you know a precision medicine for oncology. And then right behind that is cyclin E, for which is uh, overexpressed in uh, breast cancers that uh, have been treated with CDK4-6 inhibitors. So these are this is major escape pathway. So we're trying to block the escape, you know, for CDK4-6 inhibitors in in, in uh, breast cancer. So you get some idea. There is an accelerating discovery engine that learns from the first one, how to do the second one better, from the second one, how to do the third one better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a platform. No, I think that's a, a perfect description. <laughs> I, I would agree with that logic too. Yeah. And I'm curious, moving on to your other full-time company, which you also mentioned, LifeMind, um, where you're also the pre- president and CEO. Could you tell us a little bit about what LifeMind does and how this is changing drug discovery? So yeah, Jenna. So I'm happy to tell you about about LifeMind. So again, let's go back to the uh, the general kind of thesis of my career is that if you study evolution, it will teach you how to solve problems. And actually, if you look in medicine and ask, okay, where did antibodies come from? Evolution. Where did CRISPR come from? evolution. You know, we didn't get a bunch of chemists together and say, okay, let's invent a whole new system for editing genes, right? You chemists, you know, build it up brick by brick by brick, a gene editing system, right? We, what we did is said, okay, if nature is going to edit genes, how does it do it? If nature is going to target RNA, how does it do it? Well, then we got to RNA interference, and microRNAs, right? And, and we got to um, antisense and, you know, uh, uh, RNA-SH activation. And then if we want to add back a function, we say, well, how, 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 does, how does evolution do that, right? It does it using viruses. So that's what therapeutic, if you want to get rid of a foreign uh, cell, how do we do that? Well, that's T cells, killer T cells, right? So if you look across the biologic space, everybody took, every new modality came from nature. And what they did is they underwent a similar arc of of discovery. So think about it, antibodies. So we wanted to drug undruggable targets outside of cells and say, okay, how does nature do that? Well, uses antibodies. All right, how do antibodies get made? Okay, then we studied you know, VDJ recombination, somatic hypermutation, class switch recombination, and learned at the end of the day, all of this stuff, all that it does is it generates an IgG with six peptide stretches called CDRs that are combinatorialized. So what do we do now? We don't immunize people or mice. We don't even immunize mice anymore. What we do is make on phage an IgG2 that has those six CDRs combinatorialized either on phage or on yeast or whatever, for the most part, these are made by directed evolution systems that don't. So, so, so modality discovery, reverse engineering, forward engineering. We've done the same thing with CRISPR, 
modality discovery, reverse engineering, forward engineering. We've done the same thing with CAR-T, reverse engineering, modality discovery, reverse engineering, forward engineering. So why don't people do that in the small molecule space? That's crazy. So my idea in FOG, reverse engineering, modality discovery, you know, alpha helical transmembrane segments, reverse engineering. Why is that? Okay, well, the helix buries polarity. Okay, fine. Now let's forward engineer it. We're going to put a staple in it and optimize it and so on. Now, what LifeMind does is it says, well, you know what? Let's get more literal than that. Maybe in the billion years of fungal evolution on this planet, they've already evolved drugs that target things that we don't know how to drug. And there's a lot of evidence for that. We already know that because three of the most, uh, four of the most important drugs in the history of humankind have come from fungi. Lovastatin, right? Targets HMG reductase. That is the first drug that is used to prevent cardiovascular disease. That's number one new, but using a serum biomarker, surrogate marker, cholesterol, blood cholesterol, that's punching above your weight. Number two, cyclosporin. That is the first drug that potently blocks T-cell activation and is used to, um, uh, to, uh, to, you know, to ena enable widespread organ transplantation in humans. And it is the first molecular glue. Nowadays, we talk about molecular glues. My company, Warp Drive, which is now Revolution Medicine, discovered the first way to engineer molecular glues. Number three, of course, penicillin. Number four, right? The first widespread antibiotic saved millions of lives, penicillin from fungi. Number four, mycophenolic acid, which binds IMPDH and is also blocks T-cell activation. So these things came straight out of fungi and went straight to the patient. And whereas I mentioned earlier, most of small molecule drug discovery is bottom up. You brick by brick by brick, build a molecule, you add this and that little group and gradually add on enough stuff to make a drug. This is top down drug discovery. You're going to the source, which is the gene pool fungi. And you're basically getting out of these fungi drugs that come out of the fungus really close to the final drug. Okay, so that's fine. They're out there hiding in plain sight. So now how do you find them? And in the past, the way people found them was by searching in chemical space. They would grow like beer, you know, they brew up some fungi and they would extract the small molecules and then start doing phenotypic assays. That is so dead. I mean, that takes years. It's totally frustrating. Most of the genes that control the expression of these uh, these genetically encoded small molecules, they're, they're, they're repressed. They're not even, you, you brew it like beer. Those genes are not even turned on. So you're missing most of the interesting thing. So you really need to search not in compound space, but you need to search in genomic space, right? And so that means you need to know what, so when you're looking at the genes that encode this small molecule, what does that molecule do? Why is it evolved? Why, why does it exist on this planet? 
And what we discovered is that when you sequence fungal biosynthetic genes, they're called biosynthetic gene clusters. They come like operon in bacteria. You guys all remember in bacteria, you know, genes are coordinately regulated and travel together on the chromosome. So that's true in fungi. The genes that encode the biosynthesis of a small molecule travel as a cluster so that they can be horizontally transferred from one fungus to another. In plants, they're spread out all over the genome and it's almost impossible to collect them all into one cassette. But in fungi, they come as one cassette and that cassette came, contains very specific information that tells you what the fungal target is, all right? But because fungi are 50% identical to humans, that bit of information actually tells you what the human target is. That fungal gene is an avatar for the human target. So for example, if you look at the set of genes that encode the biosynthesis of lovastatin, they have HMG CoA reductase, the target in the biosynthetic gene cluster. So that gives you a searchable genomic entity that tells you, look, we don't know what this molecule is yet, we're seeing its, its blueprints, right? It's like looking at the blueprints. You may not know exactly what the factory makes or what it looks like, but you've got the blueprints and so you can make the factory. So in this case, it gives a way to search um, genomically, digitally for drugs. So it's a digital search through biological space for evolved precision medicines. That works. We have made this work prospectively. So LifeMind has sequenced uh, over 50,000 fungi that were collected all over the globe. Uh, we acquired the fungal strain collections from Merck, from Pfizer, from Shearing, from Letterly, from Wyeth. We bought them all up and we're sequencing our way through them. You know, in the, 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 only, in the public, there are only about 4,000 sequences of diverse fungi. What is so cool about this is this is based on evolutionary theory. That target inside of the cluster gives the native organism that's producing this small molecule, it gives it resistance. It's an antidote to the bioactive molecule. So what's amazing about this is we can start with a human target, RAS. We want a drug RAS, right? Now search into genomic space and you can find a set of genes that encode a RAS inhibitor. This is incredible. And so it's piggybacking on the entire evolutionary work that fungi have been doing in order to survive and thrive on this planet for the last billion years. But technology has allowed us to go searching. So high throughput sequencing, genome assembly, right? Synthetic biology is really major. CRISPR-dependent knockout, knock-in uh, in diverse fungi. And then, um, you know, the ability to optimize these molecules by synthetic chemistry. So LifeMind has put that entire arc of, a lot of this sounds probably to you a bit like, you know, academic science. And they're, we're staring evolution in the face every day. This is why LifeMind has three amazing people on the board, Krishna Yeshwan from Google Ventures, Bill Kalin, the winner of the 2019 Nobel Prize for oxygen sensing uh, you know, in, 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 uh, in human cells, Rick Klausner, 
right, the former director of the National Cancer Institute, started precision medicine in cancer at the NCI. The executive director of the Gates Foundation after that started the whole global health initiative. The founder of Juno, one of the two CAR-T companies I mentioned, Grail, right, and Lyle. Um, so, the, you know, this is a star chamber, but there, it's, it's all people who are intensely curious and who are fascinated by evolution. We've discovered that evolution has been making drugs. We just didn't know about it because we didn't have search and retrieval. So that's life mine. Now, you guys tell me, you know, Joe, Jenna, if you had to pick between one of these two companies and you were Greg, which company would you choose? Right? <laughs> they both sound pretty freaking cool, right? Yeah, I, I think uh, a, r- a really interesting thing about LifeMind is that it it wouldn't have been possible even you know five six yeah. years ago. You're right. right. Yeah, just think about the, you know like let's suppose you could do high throughput sequencing. I mean, it would be hard to afford even five years ago. You could do it, but you couldn't afford it. We just bought a NovaSeq. We spent a million dollars to buy a NovaSeq. And now we're not just doing genomics, we're doing transcriptomics and and also proteomics. DNA goes to RNA, goes to protein, goes to small molecule. Comparative genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics. Most of that stuff, you know, even the mass spec technology to do metabolomics didn't really exist, you know, five years ago, or you couldn't afford it. So this is really, this is an entirely new way of discovering drugs. This is like more than a hundred year old industry. Small molecule drug discovery is more than a hundred years old. And, and when in human history has a fundamentally new way of discovering drugs come along, but that convergence of, you know, of experimental science and also data science for both of these companies, the data science is absolutely essential. None of this work would, even machine learning algorithms, five years ago, we didn't have some of the machine learning algorithms that really make this entire thing uh, work as well. You know, AI was in its infancy. Yeah. Uh, neural networks were in its infancy way back when. So you're right. But we didn't wait for the, you know, we pounced on this thing as soon as it, as soon as it all happened. And for you guys, you know, an object lesson, you know, Joe and Jenna, is that that's happening every day. Every day, science is creating exactly the kind of opportunity that we capitalized on. Biological science is moving so quickly so that it's not like, hey, Greg came along and, you know, swept up all the opportunity. No, this opportunity is coming along every single day for people who are in science, who are going to seminars, who are reading the literature. Please, folks, read the literature and read broadly. Don't just read your area. At least, you know, like find the thing that makes you go wild with curiosity. And and there, there may well be a company in it. If not a company, don't worry about that. I always started with just made me what was drew drove my curiosity. Yeah, there's something we said for like having that gut instinct. And if you know enough and you find this interesting, there's probably something there. May not be a company, but there's some kernel of interest to other people too. Yeah, and sometimes you know you have to cycle through things. So you you know you get an idea, and then you talk to a bunch of people, and you realize, Mm -hmm. well, it's not quite ready yet. 
but you know, put that in your pocket because it may be ready five years from now. That's one thing. And that's one reason why it's really, really important to kind of forage widely. And especially while you're in a place like Hopkins, you know, go to seminars that are not in your area. Do that on purpose. Feed your brain, feed your curiosity, stoke your curiosity, because that curiosity is where most great companies come from. They come from someone scratching a curiosity itch. They don't come from financial engineering or that kind of stuff. They come from people stoking their obsession and their curiosity. Yeah. And, you know, you can't make us choose between one of one or the other. Um, but I think now we want to learn a little bit more about Greg as an executive and the two companies that you run full time, uh, as you've explained, are trying to tackle very different um, scientific concepts and, and they're unique, yeah. but are the ways that you run these two companies day to day all that different? And do you have to sort of switch your thought process throughout the day to apply your leadership to either company? Yeah, it's an interesting question because if you look at my calendar, you'll see, so I'm both CEO and CSO of both companies. That's slightly insane. But, um, and so I kind of ping pong between, you know, having meetings with with board or potential investors and then you know the 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 other operational functions of the company and then the science and you know of course you guys know I, I you know I'm fundamentally driven by the science but you know the other parts are important uh and so my days are not divided up into fog days and life mind days and they're not divided up into sort of CEO days and CSO days. So I have to ping pong, ping pong, ping pong between different things that are, that are, that are very different. And um, I don't know, maybe because I, I have attention deficit disorder that I can make that all work. Uh, I'm joking, of course, but you know, somehow I've trained my brain to be able to go between uh, those things. So um, I've adapted to it. I don't know whether it's really sustainable in the long run. It is quite taxing sometimes, you know, to, to really jump from one really deep scientific concept to another, to a meeting with an investor and, and, and so on. But, but I'm the best job on earth or the best four jobs uh, on earth. And I don't do anything other than this. I, I, I mean, you know, because because I I have this deep affection for Hopkins. I'm 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 spending time with you guys today, but I don't do much of this kind of thing much anymore because I'm you know my obligations are due to you know over two hundred people in in these two two companies. So um, now, where I thought you were going to go, Joe, is maybe something which is a little bit more. Uh, kind of challenging ground. <laughs> so I'm going to take you there, which is, you know, how do you train yourself from being a professor? Let's face it, if you're a professor at Harvard, you're an emperor. Um, or, you know, you know, you're, you're in a position where, um, you know, you're, you're, you have a dominion and so on. Uh, whereas when you're running a company, it's a very different experience. You're working with teams and, you know, if people don't like the way you run the company, they move to another company in Boston in a heartbeat. 
So you really, I think some of what's really good about this kind of job is that you have to pay a lot of attention to people's happiness. And if I ever went back to academics, I would have performance reviews like two way, you know, like, okay, I'm going to give you a performance review every quarter, but Jenna, now you're going to give me a performance review, which is what I have for all my people. And I wouldn't assume that you're a captive audience. Um, I, I would do things very differently if I went back into academics right now. I would take some of those practices that are people-related and I would implement them in an academic setting. I started a couple um, graduate programs at Harvard um, and, and one was like a bridge between, uh, between chemistry and biology and so on. And started the chemical biology program with John Clardy at Harvard Medical School. And, uh, you know, in chemistry related programs before that, they never had rotations. Can you believe that? That people would join a lab without rotations? And uh, so I, I made, I, I, I forced on the chemistry department to do, we would have, if people wanted to be in this program, they needed to do rotations. And at first the graduate students kind of revolted. They, they said, hey, what is this rotation thing? This will delay our time to get a PhD, which is nonsense. And anyway, you know, after the first group of like half of the students signed up for this program the first semester, then the other half said, no, wait, hey, they're getting rotations and we're not getting we're not getting rotations. So it was really funny how that came down. And now everybody does rotations, not only in the chemistry department at Harvard, but in every enlightened chemistry department across the entire country and a lot in Europe as well. So, you know, I think one of the one of the questions, Joe, just to you know, kind of extrapolate from your question is what's different about being, you know, running a lab and a, and a company and you really, you know, here teamwork is everything. Building a team is everything. Um, people need to take ownership, but but it, the, you know, of course, individually, but the team ends up taking the ownership and everybody owns the successes and the failures together. And uh, that means you have to have a really different orientation from running an academic uh, research lab where you almost, you know, sadly have to kind of isolate people so that you can isolate credit. I don't know how to, I don't know how to solve that problem in academics, but I got pretty tired of it to be perfectly honest. I, I found it to be very limiting if you wanted to do really you know, some really gnarly problem, you, you know, you need to work as a team and you can't yeah. isolate credit. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think you named that problem really well. And that's something I think I've been searching for the words for to yeah. describe it a while. And until you changed ultimately like the incentives for careers in academia and, you know, R and D careers to have a publication, to have a first author, like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how you fix that. I don't know how you fix it. And then you have right now, you also have this real kind of issue that was very frustrating to me that, you know, about 10 years back there, you know, the flattening of the NIH budget um, really, uh, you know, really, you know, the major thing that it did is it made fewer job opportunities for people you know, coming out of postdocs and whatever to go into academe because because there was a constriction in the in the funding environment and that that's really um, to me so short sighted because the value that we get out of the national science budget 
far exceeds what we're what we're putting into it. The only thing I would say to you guys is, you know, if you're, you know, it's, I don't know Baltimore as well, but I know Boston, and I know San Francisco, and 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 I know you know San Diego really well. Um, is that one thing that's really changed over the last few years is that the capital markets, you know, the money markets have a quite an appetite for innovative science. And so I would make a pretty strong argument that you can do really innovative science now in biotech companies. And that was not nearly as true five or 10 years ago. Uh, and so I, I think most people coming straight out of academics, a postdoc or whatever, can find a really exciting job in, in, in biotech to some extent pharma as well. And so, you know, who's to say that an acad academic job is the be all and end all? There's an argument to be said right now. I think that those jobs are in many ways less attractive than, you know, entry level jobs in biotech at least, you know, my own slightly, unless the funding environment fundamentally changes. If they double the budget of the NIH, I might feel differently. Yeah, I think that, I think that'll be a really great thing for our listeners to hear. And, and again, that's one of the real core tenets of why we started this podcast was for that exact reason. It, it's academia is, is not, and I, I think people are, are coming to understand that too. And luckily, good departments across the country are coming to understand that. Um, but, but yeah, academia is, is not the option for most people. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, it shouldn't necessarily be, um, but if you get yourself into a, you know, into a micro, into a, you know, a ecosystem like Boston or, you know, you know, areas where there's a lot of concentration, that building behind me is the original, I know that your listeners can't hear it, but there's a building right behind me that's the original building for Genetics Institute, which was started at right around the same time as, uh, as, as Amgen and Genentech on the West Coast. Um, and so, you know, there's an entire ecosystem here that I think people find just fantastic jobs. And we, you know, one thing is like, there, there's so much money that's gone into the early innovative companies right now that just enormous amounts of capital that, you know, if you want to do a million dollar experiment, you know, okay, justify it. And you can do a When in academics, could you do as a graduate student, you straight out of grad, could you do a million dollar experiment? Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. You talked about it a little bit uh, about uh, how, how the capital markets are responding to good science these days. And, You've been both an avid investor and a serial entrepreneur, um, and between Life of Mine and, and Fog Pharma, you've raised well over $100 million in venture financing. Um, so how do you think that your venture capital experience uh, as an investor aided in your ability to strategically raise capital for your own ventures? Yeah, I mean, Fog Pharma and Life of Mine, between the two of them have raised you know, a, a little bit more than $200 million. And um, there's there's more to come after that. Um, so yeah, so I've had this unusual situation where mm -hmm. I started as a pure you know curiosity driven scientist, and then was an was an academic founder, and then started working as a venture partner after that. 
and you mentioned early on three of those funds, Apple Tree, Third Rock, and, and Wuxi. I was also a venture partner for TPG, Texas Pacific Group, which is a, you know, a really large diversified fund. And so I have to say Third Rock was the most informative of all of those, because in Third Rock, what we did was we took an idea and got a bunch of people like the two of you and we, you know, did a 360 on that idea. And we got a bunch of smart people together, a lot of them academicians, but also a few people from industry and biotech. And we would pressure test it. And, and when, you know, when I started Warp Drive, we spent four years figuring out what did we want to do. Four years of like ideation and pressure testing and KOL, key opinion leader meetings and so on and so on. And, 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 and at that stage, though, I had a captive funding mechanism that was the venture group. So that flagship works this way. Uh, to some extent, Arch works this way. These are big, you know, big venture, venture groups. So that third rock model has now spread more, more widely about how you spool up an idea and then also how you pass on an idea. Right, how you decide that idea is not quite ready yet. Um, so, so, so there are probably two things. I got to know a lot of people who are in the in the finance world, um, and uh, I think some of them felt that I was a good steward of their capital because the companies that I had started had done had done reasonably well. I mean, no, you know, we're all looking for another a Moderna to have a Moderna in our portfolio and. So, you know, I'm still at it, uh, but, but they've done reasonably well. Uh, and then the other thing is really just learning um, how to lay out a, uh, a timeline and a cost line for value creation. Be, and, and, and value creation, a lot of people have the feeling that, that vent, people in the venture world are fundamentally motivated by making money. And I would argue that they're just as motivated by wanting to change the world. They're very motivated by wanting to change the world. That's why a lot of them are taking such risks on things like, you know, CRISPR and so on. Who knows whether that's ever going to work, right? Or CAR-T for solid tumors. So I, you know, I learned all of those things, but underneath my feet, even from the time that I was in Third Rock, it's about eight years, still the capital markets changed dramatically in the time after that. And so it has actually gotten to be quite easier. And if you look at even people your age, you know, and it, or your, you know, your level of, of development, let's say, I should probably shouldn't talk about age, but level of development. If you look at, for example, Ginkgo Bioworks, you know, Jason Kelly, the CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks came straight out of what uh, biological engineering at MIT, along with a, bu a bunch of other founders. So there's an example of someone who's running what a $15 billion company now that, you know, basically spooled the company up from zero over the last 10 years. And now Andreessen Horowitz, one of the West Coast venture funds, has a specific focus on, uh, you know, uh, working with early, you know, people straight out of George Church's lab or Bob Langer's lab or all your labs to try to, you know, teach them how to be entrepreneurs. 
So that forget about that a few years ago. You know that people would have said, "Oh, that's too risky. This this business is so capital intensive." And and if you can really convince people that you have a vision and you can lay it out to say, "Here is the timeline, and here's how much money we think we're going to need," and um, you know, here here's going to be the impact on patients if this all works, and here's our plan B. You know, if we don't get to that milestone and um, you know, I would say even the capital markets have gotten democratized for folks, you know, at a much earlier stage. I spent 10 years not even starting the company because at Harvard, when I started as assistant professor, you, you know, it would have counted against me if I'd started a company. It was, it, that was something you just didn't do. That was viewed as being kind of disloyal or impure or something like that. Now we look at things a bit differently. Um, so I'm kind of lucky because I live between the basic science world and the academic entrepreneur world and the venture capital world. And now the, the exec world, because I'm just so restless, maybe I should encourage you guys to be restless. That's. <laughs> hey, being busy, is, being, being busy is great. Um, yeah. I'm, so, I'm wondering too, do you think this is the best time to raise for a platform company? Has there been a better time to raise for platform companies? Never. If you you brought this idea 20 years ago and said, hey, we don't necessarily have a single clinical program, but we have this uh, thing that works really well. And and we think that we're going to have targets soon. Yeah, no, without question, this is, if if you look, you know, MPM uh, just started a fund, which is explicitly for platforms. Um, and a lot of other uh, groups like Arch and, and like Flagship uh, are really focused on platforms. I remember a time not too long ago where like platforms were kind of out of favor. And I'm, I'm saying, well, what is that all about? Like people were out licensing a drug from Takeda or whatever. And I did one of those. It's called Gloucester Pharmaceuticals. I'm very proud of it. We got a drug you know, an, an HDAC inhibitor approved by the FDA for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And, but, you know, that, that was Fujizawa's drug. That wasn't, we, we just took over stewardship of it, right? And there was a time when that was in fashion, just, you know, grabbing a drug from the industry and taking it over and all that. But now I think people are coming to realize that if you have a true platform, that that scalability, that speed, that cash efficiency, that breadth is really powerful if you build a powerful platform. Now, a few years ago, we'd start, okay, we're a platform company and the venture investors five, four, four years in would say, okay, now you've got to march a drug to the clinic. Stop all that platformy stuff now. And focus on getting that drug, you know, approved by the FDA, and that didn't work out a lot of the time. So one thing that 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 I've been adamant about in Fog Pharma and LifeMind, and and fortunately our board and our investors agree with it, is that the platform actually has a lot of value, and now the capital markets are actually coming to value these platforms. So there's no question, Joe, that the capital markets is actually are actually ascribing value 
to the platform in companies that go way look at look look at for example uh you know being as just one example the you know the capital markets are ascribing a great deal of value to the platform that goes beyond the specific products and once the capital markets ascribe value to the platform they used to devalue them to almost zero say oh that has no real value now they're looking at it and saying wow that platform actually has value and the minute they do that then you know then then it's 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 bankable so without question we're and i don't think this is going to go away i think this is here to stay that that really powerful platforms are uh, in uh, bankable investable and, and are where there's gonna be a continued focus because drug discovery has to get faster. It has to get more efficient. It just has to become you know, more effective overall. We've lived with really inefficient drug discovery for way too long. Yeah, it is hard thinking about a time that a platform wouldn't be seen as valuable, just even from a common sense point of view too, but it could yeah. continue to generate but, but believe it or not, yeah. you know, Jenna, there, there wasn't that long ago that people would say, well, that's kind of academic and has no net present value. You yeah. know, um, we're all about the products. So and, and it seems it seems odd now when you, yeah. when you listen to it. Right. But but it, but it was not that long ago where there was this, you know, people would say, well, I don't know about platform companies because they thought they were too academic. No, 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 no. Uh, I think the world looks differently and I think that's here to stay. Yeah, it really brings up the point of like how translatable is something to maybe someone not versed in academia or not trained in academia. And I think now with the pandemic, obviously many more people are seeing the translatability of different programs. Um, Yeah, I mean, Moderna Moderna and BioNTech are amazing because if you look at those examples, that that is miraculous science. Let's yeah. just be honest with each other. Miraculous. Mm-hmm. So these vaccines have by far the highest effectiveness of any vaccine in history. They are also the cleanest vaccines because their RNA, they don't have any other viral components. Not, not, not the virus that makes the vaccine, right? Because it's an RNA. It is pure coat. Uh, spike uh, glycoprotein, right? And so these are the most, you know, precision medicines as a as a vaccine that we've ever had. And on the on the discovery front, once the algorithm was discovered for how you build these vaccines, how you modify the RNA, and then the data science behind it, these things went straight from sequence to manufacturing. There was no discovery phase, right? I think think it was 42 days for Moderna from having the sequence of SARS-CoV-2 to having the first GMP manufactured batch of of a vaccine. That's a platform. And and the, and 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 we're in a in a we're, there's no question we're in a renaissance era because these vaccines are so clean, so pure, so effective that we're you know we're going to look back in a few years and say what was all the hullabaloo about you know these are just clean as a whistle and the fact that when you get that second injection that your arm hurts or you have flu like symptoms you say well that's great because it's actually working. Mm-hmm. 
and the LMP delivery is, is a platform in and of itself. That's correct. Yeah. You're exactly right. Yeah. That the LMP and that happened like that kind of happened, you know, kind of it was invisible almost, but the LMP formulations are, uh, are critical to those things uh, actually working. And so now I think people get it. Oh, that's what a platform can do. You can go straight from design to GMP manufacturing without any discovery. And, and so, you know, that's a little bit harder in the small molecule world, but in, but in, in some areas like CAR-T, you can do the same thing. You can go straight from design to manufacturing and cut short the whole discovery phase um, of things. So for those of us in the small molecule world, the aim has to be how do we cut short the discovery phase and make it more efficient. But this is, I mean, look at that. Like this, we we got to be so proud of this uh, that that you know this is what uh, science can do. It started with people in academics. I remember when Derek Rossi was my colleague at Harvard was telling me about the work that he was doing. He was mainly aimed at stem cell reprogramming at that time, and you know he came to me to talk about starting Moderna and uh, also talk with Bob Langer and a bunch of other people. And, you know, at that time, like people were pretty, God, RNA, <laughs> nobody's ever turned that into a drug before. And even antisense or siRNA, alnylam hadn't really proven itself by that time, right? So it looked pretty, pretty risky. So I give a lot of credit to, you know, to flagship and Moderna, amazing. Just absolutely, we got to be so proud, like, that happened with like our people. Our people made that happen. A miracle. The speed of that, the number of lives that it saved. I'm, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm so disheartened and perplexed sometimes by, by the, by, by the reluctance to, to embrace a, a scientific miracle. I just don't know where that comes from. But it'll go away in a few years. Yeah. You know. Um, it'll it'll be blatantly obvious that we're going to be vaccinated for all kinds of things and human beings will never be the same. We'll be better off. I think that brings up an interesting point about like biology education and biology training and how you bring people into the space that might yeah. be very esoteric, very elitist almost. Yeah. One thing that I found fascinating is in the past you've advocated for science as a trade. And I'm wondering... Yeah. I, I know you do a lot of work with the Gloucester Marine Genomics Institute, especially right. too. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how you view biotech's responsibility in re, in training, you know, the next generation yeah. in revitalizing local economies. So there are two questions there, Jenna. Let's first talk about the Gloucester Marine Genomics and Gloucester Biotechnology Academy model. So one thing that I learned, you know, I come from New Jersey from the Pine Barrens. And I have three brothers. None of them went to college. I, I, by some fortunate accident, I ended up going to college, but I come from a family of tradespeople. Um, my father was a, you know, a boat builder and a heavy equipment operator and didn't finish the ninth grade. Um, and when I uh, joined Warp Drive, I learned that people with the master's degrees were, I don't want to say perpetually unhappy, but, you know, they tended to move around a lot. And they would move for like 
a couple thousand dollars and you know increase in salary and they were caught in between the people with a phd you know and the people with a bachelor's degree were making more or less the same as people with a master's degree but even with the people with a bachelor's degree had huge debt from college and so on and they you know they weren't making as much so they were they were also a bit unhappy and would move around a lot and, and all that. And I, and I thought about it and thought, well, do you really need all of that debt? Do you really need a college degree to feed a DNA synthesizer? Do you really need a college degree to do PCR? Do you really need a college degree, you know, to do all kinds of things that we do in science? And I remember the time when I, I bought a house there's a brand new house and in and, and, and it had it had sheetrock all over it. And these team of four Irish guys came in. They were literally guys, and they came in and they spackled. You guys know spackling is the plastering, right? Yeah. They this was like a 5,000 square foot house or something like that. And in like three or four days, they spackled this house to perfection. And I thought, well, that's a lot like, and they were so proud of what they did. Or like, look at bricklayers, right? Bricklayers, they achieve perfection. Look at a plumber, a great plumber. When they put pipes in, they're perfectly straight. The 90 degree angles, you can tell they're proud of what they do. They're proud. And that's what we need is we need a class. And then I learned that Pfizer in Sandwich, that they had, they had a program in Sandwich in the UK that all of their synthetic chemists who were doing the actual molecule making, none of them had college degrees. They all were tradespeople. And so I decided that that's what we need in science. We need, we should be, training people for science as a trade. That doesn't mean that people with, and let people with a bachelor's degree do the kind of thought work that you, that help, that, that is worth the debt that you get with a bachelor's degree. So to create an entire class of people who are trades people and are proud of what they do. And so in order to do that, I founded Gloucester Biotechnology Academy, and then brought David Wall, co-founder of Illumina, Mark Vidal from the uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And we decided, well, okay, if we're going to train to have a one-year training program in the trade of doing molecular biology, right? And I thought, okay, well, we have to put them to work somewhere. What if nobody hires them? So I then started Gloucester Marine Genomics Institute so that there would be in principle a place for them to work in this uh, institute. And, and my Mark Levin, my colleague at Third Rock, who's one of the legendary, you know, legends of biotech, he said, God, Gloucester, like, you know, you can't do biotech in Gloucester. There's no biotech in Gloucester. <laughs> but there were a bunch of kids there who, like me, had grown up working for their dads and moms. And since they were little kids, they'd gone out on boats and they weren't afraid to work. They just wanted to live in Gloucester. And I thought, OK, they're they are an underappreciated resource. They are practical. 
They know how to work. They have a work ethic. They can work with their hands. They have good observational skills. Any good experimentalist has to have good observational skills, right? And so I just thought Gloucester is the place to get this thing going. Now, five years in, that program is going to come to Boston. And so I'm really proud of that, you know, and we can't fill all the jobs. All of us in biotech, we can't fill all the jobs. So Jenna, getting back to your, we need to do this. We just need to do it. We need to train the people just as if those Irish plasterers spent a couple of years learning how to plaster. Plumbers spend a couple of years in an apprenticeship. So when I started Gloucester Biotechnology Academy, I said, these people are not going to pay for this. We're going to pay for them. They're going to be paid by donors. My very first donor was Joel Marcus, who is founded Alexandria Real Estate Equities, the largest biotech you know, landlord on the planet, maybe aside from the Chinese government, you know, certainly in the United States, the largest commercial uh, landlord. And so he gave, wrote the first $50,000 check for that nonprofit. And that model really works. You know, most of the most of the people in that program now have jobs in biotech, nearly 100 people. And a few of them have gone on, decided they want to go and get a bachelor's degree. And so we get them a donor to go get a bachelor's degree. This is awesome. And uh, and, and so many people like in Fog and Lifeline, they're saying, well, look, we'd love to teach those people. So let's start a satellite operation here at Fog and Lifeline. Same thing. We'll train you know, high school graduates. So we're talking seriously about starting a satellite operation on our own turf um, right here. Now, Jenna, you were getting at another question, and I do want to get at that. It is so the obligation of scientists to democratize science. I think actually, in some way, we don't have a political crisis in the country. We have an educational crisis. And we saw, I don't know how this happened, but we have to take it really seriously that somehow scientists have not, somehow we haven't gotten it quite right to really um, make science accessible to the broader population. You did ask the question. I think there's a lot of soul searching that we scientists have to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you're doing with the nonprofit is where this work starts. It might not be, you know, you still need some sort of top-down approach, but I mean, growing up, like I didn't have role models that yeah. were scientists really. I didn't yeah. know this was a career. I didn't know any of the things I'm doing currently were a career. Yeah, yeah I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah, right? And yeah. so I think, you know, you bring up a really good point that there, that is a great place to start, but there also needs to be broader, more sweeping changes too. Yeah, and for a long time, science had a serious diversity problem. And in fact, tech has a serious diversity problem too. You know, one thing I'm really proud of, and you know, LifeMind, 60% of the leadership team are female. And, and uh, you know, somehow what's interesting about LifeMind is we got it right really early on and, you know, fog's becoming more and more diverse too, but somehow LifeMind, maybe because of all those fungi, that we had a really diverse workforce to begin with and a diverse workforce begets a, a diverse workforce. And I believe that that has, is really 
a major contributor to the success of the company because people who are coming from a diverse background think differently. And, you know, when you're, when you're really in, when you're trying to do something really complicated and difficult, especially like this new modality area, you're trying to do, you need people who kind of question, oh, why does that have to be that way? And that tends to come from people from a more diverse background. So we make a so we have to work on that. Their chemistry, the field that I come from, is shockingly bad. It's gotten better. It's got a long way to go. Um, and uh, I think so. Diversity comes in a lot of forms. We're talking about almost like socioeconomic or educational diversity. As it's just another form of diversity. What we were talking about with those, you know, high school grads, that's just another form of diversity in science. Uh, and so I think you're right. And probably the more we democratize people doing science, and I'm not talking, some of that DIY stuff really worries me. People, you know, doing CRISPR on themselves, that's not a good idea. But uh, right, but 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 what I'm talking about is democratizing jobs. Imagine if you went to West Virginia and you could give people the, these kinds of jobs to get out of the coal mines and you know do PCR or do cloning, or of course they could do it. You know, if we democratize science, um, we'll see a change in the whole society. Wow. Just the the breadth of topics that we've covered today is it's simply um, amazing. I, I, you know, was ready for a scientific discussion and we got something that was so much more. So we, we really appreciate it. And we appreciate you giving us your time, given how you know busy you are. And uh, and we also, you know, we like your um, your association with Hopkins. So any time that we get to. Uh, um, get to interview someone who who has that admiration for Hopkins. It's always great. Well, Joe, we, we have a bunch of Hopkins grads uh, in, in, in the company. And actually, we had a, a major investor the other day from uh, T. Rowe Price uh, visiting the company. And uh, he w- was a graduate of Hopkins, too. So there's a little Hopkins thing going on there. But I would encourage people, you know, if they're interested and they heard anything that they're interested in today to you know, ping me and I'll do traffic control and send you, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm not hard to find. And, you know, we're always looking for really hungry, talented, diverse uh, people who, who are not afraid to do something that breaks the mold. We, we want, we want the troublemakers, the rule breakers, the mold breakers. So I heard there are a lot of those in Baltimore and Hopkins (laughs) <laughs> I, I've met a handful of them myself. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks, you guys. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcasts on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varelli. I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening.